according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 10. We've had a couple of weeks uh, to introduce this chapter. Still in verse 1, as we uh, cross the bridge from uh, chapter 9 into chapter 10, we are uh, crossing generations. It is a rite of passage in some respects when a man leaves his father and mother. It is a rite of passage when a young man steps out from under the parental authority and stands before the Lord in his own generation, in his own accountability before the Lord. And uh, we have a a change of tone and emphasis and a structure in chapters 10 through 24 that's different than chapters 1 through 9. And we've been commenting on this for a couple of uh, Wednesdays now, and hopefully it's clear. If if it's unclear in any way, let me know, and I'll see uh, if I can explain it in a better way than than maybe I already have. Uh, But as we get into chapter 10, we have crossed a bridge. Uh, We no longer have a young man who's learning from mommy and daddy about how to live in the Word of God and, and please Jesus Christ. But now we have a man that is, uh, has left mom and dad who stands on his own, and, and now, if he's defiant to the Scriptures, he not only, I mean, he's not going to get spanked anymore. He's not going to come under parental discipline anymore. He's going to bring grief to his earthly parents, but it's going to be his heavenly Father that administers the discipline. In the, uh, in the process there. I think in a lot of ways, divine discipline is mitigated to children. That's, uh, the, the, God will use parents as the intermediary, as the tool, as the device to train that young person. And there's an awful lot of grace and there's an awful lot of hedge that's, that protects the young person under the parent's uh, dominion. Well, now they stand before the Lord. And now the, the discipline comes directly from Him in, uh, in that regard. The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. There's five verses, five buts, but, 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 but. Every verse has a but. And we're dealing with the antithetical parallelism here in, in uh, really the chapters 10 through 15 is, is predominantly antithetical. And we'll discuss that as we work our way through. Let's start with a word of prayer before we get started, asking the Father to bless our time of study, to sanctify his word today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the truth we have, the blessing we have to study your truth. Father, feed us from your truth. I thank you, Father, that uh, by your grace we are children of truth. And uh, we're, we're so thankful, Father, that the spirit of truth is going to lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we ran out of time last week, right when we were getting to Uh, the third point in the outline here, and I want to get right back to it. In the first point, I simply gave you the contrast uh, between chapter 10 and what preceded it. The Proverbs of Solomon in 10.1 forms a subheading within the overall collection. And then uh, noted under this, the three subpoints, the emphasis, tone, and structure is quite different. Uh, Chapters 10 through 24 is quite different than chapters 1 through 9. In emphasis, in tone, in structure, not in content, not in doctrine. It's the same wisdom, uh, the same wisdom, the same fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom, the same need to acquire wisdom, the same need to acquire understanding. Uh, It's not a different message, but the emphasis, tone, and structure is different. And uh, it's being given in the third person uh, more so than the first person. It's not uh, a parent pleading with a child. It is laying out there the way it is and leaving it for the application to, uh, to the man that stands or falls before uh, the Lord in accountability before his word. 
Short, pithy statements of truth are presented in no discernible order or progression. It's like a shotgun. It's like a, a potluck. And uh, there it is. And you've got uh, however many verses in this chapter, 32. And why are they in that order? And, and why do we seem to be bouncing around from topic to topic? And we, we hit this, we hit this, we hit this. I read five verses before we prayed. And it's like... Um, all four, all five of them seem to be different topics. You might find some similarity in verse 1 with verse 5 because they mention sons, but um, there doesn't seem to be a lot that connects those verses together. They seem to be a, a shotgun approach, and that is the nature of this section. Uh, in 10 through 15, these chapters are mostly antithetical parallelism. In other words, there's an A statement, a but, and a B statement. So on the one hand... A wise son makes a father glad, but on the other hand, uh, a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And so two things are being said that are antithetical, that appear to be at odds, uh, and, and we put them together to get the whole picture. And uh, so you've got a wise son on the one hand, a foolish son on the other hand, you've got a father on this hand, you've got a mother on this hand. And, uh, and by the way, in the Hebrew poetry of it, you're allowed to crisscross. <laughs> okay, uh, we're not saying that you know. So put the mother in the first half of the verse. The mother will also be glad if the son is wise. Okay, and all, likewise, the dad is also going to be grieved in the second half of the verse if the son is 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 a fool. Okay, so you can crisscross. You can mix and match the father and mother. Put them in both halves. The antithetical parallelism allows you to do that to what I call the crisscross. Okay. And uh, Hebrew grammarians, if you talk to Glenn Carnegie and he'll tell you the official Hebrew term for that, but um, I call it the crisscross, all right, in the antithetical parallelism of Hebrew poetry. When we get into chapter 16 and following, from chapter 16 through 22, uh, we have either synonymous or synthetic parallelism. And synonymous is you're saying the same thing twice and you're putting an and in between and basically it's the same thing. They're synonymous statements. In synthetic statements, they're not the same thing, but but the one leads to the other. It's a progression. Uh, One leads to the other. And if it wasn't for the first one, you really couldn't get to the second one, but they lead from one to the other in in a synthesis. And so they're called synthetic. And whether you have a synonymous or a synthetic parallelism in the poetry, uh, we would typically use and as our connection. All right, And becomes our connecting conjunction between the two lines of the poetry. And then following 22.17 to the end of chapter 24, uh, we have exhortative proverbs, proverbs that exhort the, the listener to do something. And in the nature of the exhortation, we do have an echo of the first nine chapters. Uh, Very much the uh, admonitions from parental wisdom get echoed in in the adult standing of uh, chapters 22 through 24. So we'll talk about that when we reach that point. Chapter 10 clearly is a contrast of the righteous with the wicked. And it, uh, it jumps out at you when you look at it. In fact, I even created a visual filter. So as I'm reading through uh, my text in Proverbs 10, it, uh, it jumps out and close this and stretch this. And so you can see it there better than I can see it here. All right. It's a yellow glow, but it turns out kind of dirty mustard up there. Um, that's fine. Dirty mustard's easier to see. Um, everything that's highlighted there is either righteousness or wickedness, right? And it may not be as evident in the English because maybe it's, it's ill-gotten, ill-gotten gains. Well, those are the, the, the prophets of wickedness. The prophets of wickedness do not profit, okay? A little, a little bit of a play on words. Well, how could they be prophets if they don't profit? Okay? Well, because of the prophets of wickedness. And, uh, Anyway, so the, uh, you can just see by scanning down every time there's a highlight there that you're dealing with righteousness or wickedness. It's a big theme. In fact, it's a big theme throughout many of these chapters here from 10 to 24. It's a dominant contrast. And that shouldn't surprise us because a proverb is a comparison. A proverb is a comparison. It is something is either like something or it's not like something. And uh, these things are being contrasted. 
So uh, Tzadik is used 13 times, Rasha is used 12 times, and last week we uh, looked, uh, two weeks ago we looked at Tzedek and uh, reminded ourselves what righteousness is all about in the Bible. Righteousness is not ours, it's God's, it's imputed to our account. Um, Likewise, wickedness. We talked about wickedness as well. And uh, just a, a short introduction to wickedness. There's 263 uses of the adjective and uh, you know, we're not going to look at all of them, but we looked at a handful of those verses last week, so we have a handle on wickedness versus righteousness. Now, point three, where we ran out of time, really what I want to stress today. Proverbs 10.1 forms a great threshold between parental wisdom and personal public wisdom. I like the concept of a threshold. A threshold means you're on the verge of something, right? You're stepping through something, a doorway. You're stepping through, you're carrying your bride across the threshold, which, you know, you do when you're young, <laughs> and healthy and strong and, and whatever. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to stop right there, okay? You're young, you're stronger, and she's lighter. You said it, I didn't say it. All right. And so you carry your bride across the threshold and you're stepping from one realm into another realm. And, and so symbolically, um, it's, it's, it's critical, right? You're fulfilling uh, Genesis 2. You're leaving father and mother. You're cleaving to one another. Uh, it, is, it is a generational identification. And, uh, and I think years ago, uh, and I don't even know who invented this, uh, it, it was... Um, <clears throat> it's been a theological term for a long, long time, all right? The age of accountability. It's, it, it goes back at least to the 1700s, probably earlier. Um, I know Thien didn't make it up. I know um, that uh, Gill spoke about it. There's others that have spoken about it. On the basis of uh, David's infant son who died, and the statement that's made there uh, in Second Samuel when David said, I will go to him, he will not come back to me. And the recognition is that any infant, any child that's too young to accept the gospel or reject the gospel, that in the grace of God that they are brought to glory, that, that uh, they, they don't have to believe in Jesus Christ because they're not old enough to believe in Jesus Christ, to accept the gospel or reject the gospel. That is the concept of the age of accountability. All right? And even though they're born in sin and even though they're condemned in Adam, all right, that until they reach that age of accountability to, us, to be accountable for acceptance or rejection, then the I- imputation of Adam's guilt is not accredited to their account. Uh, and that's why he brings them to heaven. In any event, that's a, that's, a, that's a concept that's hundreds of years old. I didn't invent that. I teach it. I accept it. All right. And now I've added to it, I think, uh, because if, if I stole this from somebody, I don't know who I stole it from, because I added now the, not just the age of accountability when the person is old, you know, four or five or ten or however old, they're old enough to understand, then generational, the generational accountability is, is my term, generational accountability. And, and this, is, this comes from the Exodus, this comes from other passages, Old Testament and New Testament alike, where God deals with generations. He holds a generation accountable. And he holds a man accountable in his own generation. Not for the sins of his father, but for his own accountability. See? And this is what I want to stress here today. In fact, if I take the whole hour today to do this, I will be pleased. uh, Because I think it's vital. And then I will bookmark this MP3 file on the website, and I'll start sending people to listen to this message. (laughs) Because I think it's... uh, it's a vital message. Now, uh, recognize that no matter how great a job the parents did or how terrible a job the parents did in training their children, adults stand before God and man accountable for their own application. Okay? Maybe you had the best parents ever in the history of parenting. You still stand before the Lord in your generation accountable for how you walk, either in conformity to the Word of God or out of step. All right. Maybe you had the worst parents ever in the history of parenting. Your family put the fun and dysfunctional. Okay? Maybe. But in your generation, okay, in your generation, you stand before the Lord. And by the grace of God, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Absolutely beautiful thing. 
And uh, that's what we see here in chapters 10 through 24. Gladness and or grief. These are the parental experiences after the adult son or daughter enters into their own generational accountability. These are the parental experiences. And we'll, we'll get to this as we develop it out. Uh, making a father glad, making a, uh, bring grief to the mother. Then what? <laughs> okay. When they're smaller, the grieved mother might spank that child. When they're smaller, the grieved father will, will take remedial action and discipline that child. But in their own generation, an adult son that brings grief to his father, that's where it ends. It ends with that grief. The father has nothing he can do about it. The mother has nothing she can do about it. She accepts the grief, probably prays about it, I expect, accepts it and gives that to the Lord. Becomes a, a, a better motivated prayer warrior, intercessor on behalf of those adult children. Likewise, the uh, gladness. The gladness. You reap gladness. It's a joy to see, uh, as it says, the Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. All right? There is no greater joy for a parent. It doesn't matter if they're doctors or lawyers or successful or whatever else. If they are walking in the truth of the Word of God, that's, that's heaven right there. That's, that's joy right there to any parent, any grandparent, great-grandparent, or what have you. To see your descendants walking in the truth. I think there's a parallel in, in pastoral ministry as well when you look at Hebrews 13, 17. Okay? Because pastors are told, and it's not a true parental thing. I'm not saying that pastoring is identical to parenting, but there are similarities, okay? And the scriptures say there are similarities. In Hebrews 13, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, um, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. And so that's the parallel right there, is the tandem, is that antithesis of joy on the one hand, grief on the other hand. And so parents with adult children are experiencing very much what pastors experience when they watch their flock do things that they should know better, right? Uh, A pastor sees a church member doing something that they should know better, and he just says, Man, that's not the doctrine I taught. What are they doing that for? Okay, A parent sees an adult son doing something and they go, I trained them better than that. What are they doing that for? And, uh, well, you've got the joy or the grief in either case. Now, uh, in terms of believers in a local church, uh, this now becomes rewardable. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And the fact is, if you make uh, if you make your pastor's shepherding a chore, well, then you lose reward for that. See, he'll still do it if he's a faithful shepherd. He'll still serve the Lord and shepherd you, and he'll he'll accept the grief. But you lose the reward. It's unprofitable for you. And again, do the crisscross on the, on the Hebrew poetry here, okay? Do the crisscross. If you make the pastor's shepherding a joy, let them do this with joy, that is profitable. You have reward of the judgment seat of Christ for being a, a joy-producing sheep in the, uh, in the uh, context there. Anyway, Gladness and or grief. This is, these are the parental experiences. And so the son is out there and he's doing, and there's great illustrations of this. I, I meant to put it on the screen. There's, uh, you remember um, Esau had a couple of wives that, that were just, uh, and, and they were hit, a couple of Hittite women, right? And, and they were a grief to, to Jacob, right? They were, uh, I'm sorry, to Isaac and to Rebekah. They were a grief. And so that it actually fed into some of the the reasoning when Rebecca was telling lies to Isaac, saying, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's send Jacob to Paddan Haram where he can get a wife from our kinsmen there uh, because 
these Hittite women are just such a grief, right? Imagine if, uh, <laughs> whatever the case. I have one daughter-in-law, so I can't illustrate without getting personal and, and, and uh, you know. But I love her. She's, she's marvelous. So uh, I, would, I would want to tell my younger son, hey, you know, you ought to enroll at Word of God Bible College in Kiev, Ukraine, and see if you can find a wife while you're over there. Uh, because we're so, we couldn't be happier with, with uh, the wife that, that my firstborn son was blessed with. So we couldn't be happier. The, the flip side of that is, well, what if we're not happy? What if it's, a, it's awful? And Esau had married a couple of Hittite women, and, and they were just not pleasing to, to uh, Isaac and Rebekah. And so that became the venue then when Rebecca said, let's, let's ship him off. And, and there was a bunch of lies there too because um, she was just trying to save Jacob's life. Uh, they, they had schemed to, to steal the, the birthright and the blessing. Um, but the point is, if you go to Genesis 24, you'll see that those adult women, the, the marriage, the, the choice of spouses, spouses? Yes, spice? Spouses. The... I don't recommend more than one spouse anyway, so why do you need to know the plural of spouse? Um, <laughs> they were a grief to, to Isaac and Rebekah, we're told. And that's the illustration. There's more. There's, there's plenty of illustrations where adult children, I mean, you look at David's adult children, oh my goodness. You know, one of the, the sons raped one of the step, half-sisters, one of the daughters, and I mean... There was a tremendous ugliness in, among David's adult children. One of them usurped the throne, staged a coup, and, and David had to flee for his life as, as uh, the, the throne was being taken. So uh, gladness or grief. There's plenty of biblical illustrations of adult children bringing grief and gladness, by the way. Bringing gladness to their adult children, uh, to their parents. And this is, uh, this is the aspect of it. Because once, uh, once they're gone, once they've flown the coop, right, or flown the nest, then they, they, they're in the Lord's hands. You no longer spank them, you no longer discipline them, you no longer... Um, it's, it's, it's a whole new change. So generational accountability is presented very clearly in the Scriptures. And we've got to start on this, but I was running out of time on this. Understand Genesis 2, 24 and 25, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And this new relationship, this new relationship, this is what God has joined together, right? Let no man separate what God has joined together. The two shall become one flesh. God does that. And this is now generational accountability. That man stands before the Lord. He has a helper now corresponding to him suitable to him a help meet unto him right the help meet and so this now is that unit they have left father and mother and and humanity was designed that way you know there's there's animals that that kick the brood out of the nest pretty young right we aren't designed that way because we have to train up the next generation and the nurture and the admonition of the lord we can't just you know, give them a, a little bit of animal instinct and then kick them out to fend for themselves. You know, fruit flies can mature, can be born and mature and mate and reproduce, and you can have how many generations of fruit flies in 30 days? You know, humans a bit longer, okay? We got, we got to, uh, and, and then, but then comes the issue on, you know, failure to launch. What, what happens when that, the, the, the man ought to be standing before the Lord? And he's still, uh, you know, well, hey, I can be on my parents' insurance until I'm 26. The president said so. Well, wait a minute. All right. Generational accountability. And, and by the way, for most of the Old Testament, it's considered age 20. Uh, Exodus 1, 6, Exodus 30 and verse 14. You know, uh, when, when, when God determined uh, that the Exodus generation was going to die in the wilderness and it would be the wilderness generation that was going to cross into the promised land, God himself selected age 20 as his cutoff. And uh, why did he pick 20? 
I don't know. Ask him. I just read it. But you'll notice Exodus 1 6, here are the coming down to Egypt, and the tribes are mentioned, and uh, they're 70 in number, although Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph, Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. All that generation. So when the last one died, they, they said, all right, that's it. That generation is gone. See, and of course, when you're dealing with siblings, it's maybe easier than marking generations in, in other cases, but there it is. He deals with generations. Why is it significant that a generation is gone? That no living person remembers? You see, there's a, there's a key there. I think it's also remarkable that when you, when you track those generations in, in Genesis... The first generation that didn't know Adam, depending on which numbers you use. Again, are you using Septuagint numbers? Are you using Masoretic numbers? But um, in, under one system of counting those numbers, the first generation, because Adam lived 930 years after, after the fall. And so, uh, but Noah was the first generation that didn't know Adam. Is that significant? <laughs> well, if God deals with generations... And here's a generation that does not have access to the very human beings that were kicked out of the garden. All right. Why did they not have written scriptures back then? Well, did they really need it? <laughs> when Adam and Eve are still around? When Cain, when, uh, not Abel, Abel's dead, but when uh, uh, Seth is still around? All right. Exodus 30 and verse 14. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. And this is when they took a shekel, all right, or half a shekel. Uh, half a shekel is a contribution to the Lord. This is according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and this is hundreds of years before the Solomon's temple. But they still have a, an official standard, the shekel of the sanctuary. Shekel is 20 geras, so half a shekel then, 10 geras. That's the, the and everybody had to pay it, one per this is their generational accountability. The rich shall not pay more. The poor shall not pay less. There's no such thing as a progressive or a graduated um, payment. Not on this. All right. In others, there was. There were there were three different levels for the for the firstborn, the redemption of the firstborn. But here it was one per. One per. Chapter thirty-eight and verse twenty-six is when they paid it. That's when they were told to pay it, and then. In chapter 30, they were told to pay it. And then in chapter 38, they did pay it. A becca ahead, that is half a shekel. I guess a becca is a half shekel. Ten geras is a becca. According to the shekel of the sanctuary. Each one who passed over, and then you got the big numbers there. Was it really 600,000 uh, fighting age men? Or have these numbers been adjusted to reflect the uh, misunderstanding of the uh, the uh, soldiers there? Numbers thirty two thirteen. Numbers thirty two thirteen. <laughs> so what do we see with these taxes? Well, guess what. A part of life, part of growing up, part of standing in your own generation. <laughs> Death and taxes. How about that? You get, uh, you stand in your own generation, you, you're paying your taxes. You know, life is simpler when you're under your father's house, you know, your father's roof. You know, you get on your own and guess what? Now you've got rent, now you've got utilities, now you've got taxes, now you've got all kinds of other stuff. You have your own cable bill, you know. Why you... Uh, Emailing me for my password. What do you? <laughs> All right. No, we get a family plan for our cell phones. So there you go. Happy to do it. Uh, what am I headed for now? Numbers thirty-two, thirteen. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. Of course, this is what we're dealing with here. He made them wander in the wilderness forty years. Is that considered a generation? Is it, does it take 40 years? Well, in this case it did. 
40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil on the side of the Lord was destroyed. That's what it took. Of course, he had sovereign control over that too. Of everyone that was 20 years old and over, when they passed through the Red Sea, it took 40 years for that entire crop to, uh, to pass. And, uh, and there it is. And so he deals with them on a generational basis. The, uh, the blessings of Canaan are deferred until that generation who forsook those blessings is gone. And then the next generation is allowed to enter into Canaan and, and uh, be blessed by the, the milk and honey. So that's Numbers 32, 13. Deuteronomy 5, verse 9 and verse 10. Deuteronomy 5 is the parallel to Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue, as it were. Now there's a new generation. They have to be brought up in the same truth that their parents were brought up in. That's why Deutero 2, Namas, law, it's the second giving of the law. It's the restatement of the law to the second generation. So you have Deutero for two and Namas for law, and that's the Greek name for the, for the book. And in this, verse 9 and verse 10, uh, as far as idolatry is concerned and not having any other God before me, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so here we have a promise, and it shows how God deals with generations and how God in his long suffering will tolerate three, even a fourth generation of hatred against him. Not a fifth, <laughs> okay? Not a, and certainly not a sixth or longer, but even, not even a fourth, not even a fifth. To the third and to the fourth. That's as far as he will tolerate within generations of those who hate him. But showing loving kindness to thousands. And again, in context, what are we talking about here? A thousand generations. Okay? Here it's idiomatic. Elsewhere it's going to be spelled out with precision. And so he deals with generations. My, uh, I'm thankful that, uh, of course, in my generation... I'm a believer, and all my siblings are, are believers. We all accepted Christ at a very young age. We were brought up under doctrinal teaching, that we heard the gospel in our, in our youth. And, and I count that as a, as a blessing for my generation and then my children's generation. I have four children. All four of them placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And they did so in their, in their youth. And I'm thankful for that. Absolutely thankful for that. My parents' generation, that was a tougher road to hoe. That was a... That was, uh, that was different, all right? Uh, my, my dad um, was not raised in a Christian home uh, because of the generation before him. And then, then you've got to go back even three generations. You go back far enough, we had, we had four generations of Mormons. See? And it's scary <laughs> how these things happen. Um, but in terms of uh, the Bolanders that came, in 1751, on the good intent, I love that, the ship they sailed on was called the good intent, and the good intent brought Adam Bolander and his wife to Philadelphia, and from Amsterdam to Philadelphia, in 1751, all right, and then there's seven generations, I'm, in the, I'm the seventh generation from Adam, if you ever read uh, the book of Jude, okay, the seventh generation from Adam, Enoch, when the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, anyway, different story but so you start tracking these generations now when they first came over they were dutch reformed they were dutch reformed born again believers in jesus christ as a part of the dutch reformed church and uh they uh they swore allegiance to to king george they were became british subjects in the colonies in the colony of pennsylvania and so forth then you start tracking the generations okay and when when they got to illinois um, they became Mormons. And, and a splinter group, there was a big split. The group that didn't follow Brigham Young out to uh, Salt Lake, 
they had a temple in, in uh, I think it was Missouri? Kansas City, yeah. Independence, I think, outside of Kansas City, nearby. And so that, that splinter group became known as reorganized uh, or reformed Latter-day Saints. And some of them went to Ohio, and some of them went to uh, Illinois, and some of them stayed, most of them stayed in Missouri. Well, my branch of Bolanders uh, was, was that Mormon branch. And for about to the third and to the fourth generation, see. But uh, my grandfather, Ralph, totally rebelled. Became a total pagan. He hated the, the Mormon church. He hated God. He hated all kinds. He became just a total pagan and a drunk and a brutal guy. So that's the generation that broke it, see. That's the generation that broke it. So then in 1950... Uh, when uh, my dad's a five-year-old little boy and uh, living in a pagan home, okay, uh, a neighbor lady's walking down the street, a neighbor lady that, uh, that I always, I never met her, she's with the Lord now, but I've always kind of envisioned she probably looked like Ethel Dowd probably or something. Just this neighbor lady walking down the street, saw him playing in the front yard and said, hey, do you want to come to Sunday school? And, and asked the parents, can I take, can I take him to Sunday school? And took him to Sunday school. Kept taking him to Sunday school. Again and again and again and again until he went off to college. Okay? Uh, from kindergarten, elementary, high school, everything. So my dad gets saved as a boy in a, in a Baptist church in Salem, Oregon. Um, and, and begins now the next generation. The next, and that's, it's tough when you're that crossover generation, you know? You, you, you know, your parents aren't supporting what you're doing. But uh, Mrs. Roth, Roth, last name Roth, takes, uh, takes him to Sunday school. And for years, until he's 18, until he leaves home, until he goes to college. Until she sits him down and says, now be very clear, you're going to a, 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 a free Methodist school there. Seattle Pacific College was a free Methodist school. And she says, that's Arminian theology. They're going to teach you can lose your salvation. You've got to be solid on your Calvinism. And so she sat him down to make sure that he was solid on his Calvinism where he wouldn't lose his salvation or get mixed up with the, the free Methodist school there that he was going to. Okay? Anyway, he tells the story better than I do, but he's not here. So I'm telling you the story. And I'm looking forward to meeting Mrs. Roth someday because she's in heaven and uh, what, a, what a thrill that's going to be. And because he could get saved, okay, what's the blessing in my generation? What's the blessing to his children, to his grandchildren? <clears throat> if miracle of miracles, great-grandchildren come along at some point, then again, it's the blessing of God then upon, upon that. My mother, similar, in a similar case. Uh, mother uh, got saved on an airplane, when, and she's a 13-year-old on an airplane, and a 10-year-old little girl has a wordless book, a CEF wordless book, and uh, uses the wordless book to, to lead my mom to faith in Christ. And so that was at 13 after she already watched her mother drown. She watched her mom drown when she was nine and, uh, and did not have eternal life until she was 13 and then learned about heaven, learned about Jesus, and learned about all that. So... Yeah, the generation before me, that was a tough, that's tough to deal with some of those things. Not growing up under teaching. In any event. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's a, a vital principle there in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Two chapters later in, in 7 9, it's restated. And uh, more provision, uh, more precision. Like I say, it's it's idiomatic in chapter five. There's more precision in chapter seven. No, verse nine says, "Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation, with those who love Him and keep His commandments." All right. Now this is very precise to a thousandth generation. When have we ever had that on this planet? Okay, we have not. We have not. We can track 60 generations from, uh, from uh, Adam to Jesus. How many generations have we had since Jesus? How many generations? You know, how long does it take to have a thousand generations? I believe this is a promise. I don't think this is hyperbole. 
There's folks that say it is. I prefer a literal hermeneutic. I believe that the dispensation after the millennium is a thousand generations on the new heavens and new earth because I take this passage literally. In any event, that he deals with generations. There will be on this earth 1,000 generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And when generation 1,000 is born, generation 1 through 999 will still be alive. And we will all be worshiping together. Won't that be fun? Imagine, okay? That's going to be a thing to behold. Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable or a proverb. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So listen up. I'm going to tell you something I heard from great granddaddy. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something I heard once from Ralph Broad. Let me tell you something I heard once from Glenn Carney. Okay? Let me tell you something once. I heard this once from Chet McCauley years ago. You know, think about RB theme. Think about former pastors. Okay? Now you know you're getting old. Okay? Someday, some young pastor is going to say, you know what Pastor Bob said one time? (laughs) No telling. All right? I'm sure it was goofy. Which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us, but guess what? We have to pay it forward. We have got to pass this down. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. See, if we don't tell our grandchildren, how are they going to tell their grandchildren? It's got to get to the generation that we're not going to be here to see. And this is, of course, before the fullness of time. This is before the new heavens and new earth. This is how it operates now. For um, tell it to the generation to come, the praises of the Lord, that his strength and wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that God should put their confidence, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, the stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Look at this. This is vital. This is vital in spiritual life. This is vital in secular life. This is absolutely vital. I think the values of the... Of the um, Depression, the values of World War II, the values of the generations that learned the hard way, the, the, the priorities of life, we're losing that. And what we have now is a generation that's had everything given to them. They've not sacrificed for nothing. And it's all been handed to them and they think they're entitled. I think it's interesting. I, I wonder, was this the Psalms that prompted the preamble? When, when Madison wrote the Constitution and the Founding Fathers drafted, it's to ourselves and our posterity. We the people, right, of these United States do ordain and establish this Constitution. You know, and, and why? But it's to ourselves and to our posterity. They had posterity in view. And this is, uh, an, again, it's a constitutional argument in the secular world. You know, the, uh, you want to talk about the rights of, <laughs> you can find a right somehow in the Constitution. Really? The, our posterity is mentioned in the Constitution. There's a right for you. And it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The right to murder our posterity before they can be born? Is that in the Constitution? What are we talking about? Anyway, I'm getting political now. Generations. You have to deal with generations, spiritually first of all, but then secularly after that. In the generations, as God works his plan out through generations in a culture. They were, uh, the history of Israel was based upon generations. 
and it was the, the, the political leadership, it was, it was Manasseh that caused the, the uh, irrevocable judgment of Judah. The captivity to Babylon was irrevocable after Manasseh's generation. All right? And even if, even if Samuel and Moses and, and uh, Jeremiah were to all stand there together in a great big prayer meeting, the three of them it w- wasn't going to save Jerusalem because of Manasseh's generation. We'll, we'll get to that next Sunday in our Jeremiah class. So take Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, read that and consider what we're doing and passing on our heritage to our children and our grandchildren. What are we passing on? Are we passing on wealth and estates and money and, and whatever? Giving them Carnegie endowments? Isaiah 53, 8. I think it's interesting. At one time we had, of course we have Carnegie still in this church, we had Rockefellers in this church once upon a time, and I thought with Rockefellers and Carnegies we ought to be the richest church. In <laughs> Are you kidding me? But uh, no, we had, we had other branches of Carnegies and other branches of Rockefellers, branches that uh, passed on a much better legacy, let me tell you, an eternal legacy to children and grandchildren. All right. Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. You ever pay attention to this? I think it's remarkable. Out of every verse in this chapter that speaks to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, notice, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, the human beings on the planet when Jesus Christ walked this earth, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Those wicked, wicked men that thought they won because they killed him. For the transgression of my people, to whom was the stroke due? (laughs) It wasn't due to him, but look what they did. And they defiantly said, when they demanded the release of Barabbas, his blood be upon us and upon our children. They defiantly said that. And what happens to that generation in 70 A.D.? Well, first of all, first of all, they ate their children in the cannibalism of surviving the the, uh, siege. And then after they ate their children, they were put to the sword. To his generation, who considered? God deals with generations. And this was the first Advent generation. What's going to happen to the second Advent generation? Tribulation. What's going to happen in the rapture generation? I hope that's us. <laughs> I believe it is us. I'm confident that it's us. All right, that's Isaiah 53. How about um, Ezekiel? Now, the whole chapter of Ezekiel 18 would take more time than I have right now, but let's just look at it. Because... Um, this has to be put in tandem with Deuteronomy 5. In other words, the wrath of God to the uh, children, uh, to the third and the fourth generation. What does that mean? Does that mean that children are punished for their parents? That grandchildren are punished for their grandparents? That great-grandchildren are punished for their great-grandparents? And then once he's done punishing all four, that, that's, that's uh, when he ends it? No. That means it's because generation one, two, three, and four, each one of them hates him. Each one of them hates him. And so that's where he cuts it off and he's done with it after that fourth one. Imagine how the compound discipline would have to be applied to the fifth generation. That's why he doesn't take it there. But it doesn't have to go to the third and the fourth. It could stop at the second. It could stop at the third. And that's what Ezekiel 18 talks about. So in Ezekiel 18, you've got generations, and in some cases there's a grandfather that's walking well, a father that's walking horribly, and a grandson that's walking well. And so you have good, bad, good. Or maybe you have bad, good, good, or or bad, good, bad, or, or, or what have you. You have different generations, and God deals with each one. With each one. And so... 
what, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat, you notice that man can change it in his generation. It starts, of course, that he is righteous. Based upon his righteousness, he's going to reflect that in how he lives in his secular life. His spiritual life motivates his temporal life. And um, so forth. In verse 9, he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully. He is righteous. He will surely live, declares the Lord. He has eternal life. He will be blessed in temporal life because he's living accordingly in his generation. He may have a violent son who sheds blood, who does any of these things to a brother. And then this horrible thing, well, that son will be dealt with as a son. And God does not hold the children accountable for the sins of their parents. They'll have association, uh, effects by association, but they have generational accountability for their own sins. And then, of course, you can turn a man from the wickedness of his sins. Anyway, it's a long chapter, and I'm short on time, but there it is. I want to get to Matthew, and I want to get to Acts. <laughs> i got eight minutes. So, yeah, I just think, be careful as you read through. Don't, don't fall for anything. If there's a verse that seems like somebody is earning something by the life they're living, that if they, if they live a good life, they're earning righteousness. That's not, this chapter isn't saying that. Don't misread it in that, in that concept. It's about a wicked man. It's about a righteous man. It's about position. Position always precedes experience. All right. And then the blessings to be able to turn a man away from his wickedness. What a, what a delight. And what if you cannot turn that son away from wickedness? Can, can you skip to the grandson? Can you snatch him from the fire? Is it possible that that middle generation will never come back? Can you reach down to the next generation and turn them back? All right. Matthew 12, 45. Let's get to a couple of these New Testament passages. See, it doesn't change. I got a verse in Matthew and a verse in Acts. You know, um, there, there are significant changes between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's, our stewardship is not their stewardship. Um, we don't have a land grant. We don't have uh, tribal allotments in terms of, of uh, covenant promises. We do, though, still operate in Gentile nations. We still do operate in generations. We still do operate in, temp- in the temporal world. All right. And so we still have principles that need to be applied, even in the church age. There are still principles to be applied. And I think it's uh, clear that we want to understand this as well. Matthew 12 and 45. Boy, there's a lot I could teach out of this too. But here's... um, What happens when a generation gets caught up in demonism? You know, um, we want to see a sign. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to him, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Interesting. You know, what's the characteristic of this age? What's characteristic of this generation, millennials today? What characterizes them? Baby boomers, what characterizes them? Anyway. Then the Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I'm thankful beyond anything that I was born in the 
well, a couple things. I wouldn't trade the church age for anything, but even within the church age, within the body of Christ, from 33 AD to now, let me tell you something. We are much better post-Gutenberg, okay? Printing press, the text of the Word of God, that we can have a printed Bible in our hands that before Gutenberg was almost unheard of. And then post-Gutenberg, how about post-Logos Bible software? I believe, I told Bob Pritchett this once, he's the founder of, of Logos Bible Software. I believe that our generation is, is going to be held more accountable than any generation since Gutenberg. All right, that it's so transformative. We can talk about Google and the internet and blah, 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 and I think there's probably accountability there too. But the, the, the taking the Word of God and digitizing it and indexing it and searching it and, and making it available... You know, when you think before Gutenberg, the common man didn't own a Bible. I've got 300 of them right here in my pocket, you know, and I can search them. I've got Greek, I've got Hebrew, I've got, I mean, it's it's stunning what's accountable. James Strong took 20 years to put his Strong's Concordance together. Now we search it in milliseconds, 20 years of his life. So... (laughs) You know, who's going to stand up when this generation stands at the judgment seat? When our generation stands at the judgment seat, how embarrassed are we going to be? How crushed are we going to be? Because what have we been given? And what have we done with what we've been given? How soft and easy have we had it? How, how, and I'm going to be standing there getting my reward, my little thimble full of whatever, and I'm looking over at these guys that were thrown to lions. And so um, then you get a generation that's involved in demonism. And okay, you get rescued. He goes out and then he comes back. Yeah, you kick a demon out, he comes back with seven more. Seven other spirits more wicked than itself. You know, you, you rescue somebody from drugs, they go back to it, it's worse than ever. You rescue somebody out of a homosexual enslavement, they go back, it's worse than ever. And every time they go back, it's worse than ever. It's because the demons are worse than ever. The last state has become worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. And when he gives them over, when he gives a generation over, as with Manasseh and the, and the irrevocable judgment of captivity. Finally then, Acts thirteen thirty six. This is my challenge for each one of us. This is my challenge for me. Here's uh, this preaching, and uh, Paul's preaching this. It's the first missionary journey. And uh, the promise about not allowing your Holy One to undergo decay in Psalm 16, uh, that wasn't uh, David. David wasn't prophesying about himself. David was prophesying of the greater son of David to come, the Christ to come. It's a messianic prophecy in Psalm 16, a prophecy that he uh, would not undergo decay. Now, they misapplied it. He was telling them, I'm going to go to the cross and die. And they said, no, 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 Christ is never going to die. Well, you're, mis- you're misreading Scripture. Christ is going to die. He has to die. But he won't undergo decay. He's not going to stay dead. And David, after he served, I love this, he's, he's dead, he's still dead. But David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among the fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And so let it be known to you, brethren, through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. But key on that phrase, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation. My mother served the purpose of God in her generation, and he took her home. The rest of us are still here, serving the purpose of God in our generation. And I like that phrase. I think we ought to focus on it. We ought to make it a prayer item. What am I doing while I'm here? What am I doing in the children I'm raising? What am I doing in the church I'm pastoring? What am I doing in my generation to my culture? Hmm. Do we have a King Manasseh right now? What am I going to do as I serve God and the purpose of my generation? And what happens uh, if we end up with a queen of Thalia? 
All right. I mean, Ahab and Jezebel were bad enough. What about Athaliah? The daughter of Jezebel was even worse. All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this concept. I pray we be mindful of generational accountability. I'm thankful here, Father, we had uh, lunch on Sunday in our potluck with uh, the Johnson family. I'm thankful for for their uh, new little guy, and we're going to have an infant dedication. And it's, it's, uh, it's fun, Father, to think that, man, here's the next generation. And, uh, Father, we're, uh, this, this flock has been here, and you've been faithful for generations before us, and there's generations coming after us. And from generation to generation, Father, you are he. You are I am. And I thank you for that. Father, might we be mindful that we be faithful to serve you, So long as we're here, Father, we're serving your purpose in our generation until we breathe our last and are gathered to our fathers. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.